Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people. Welcome once again to Four Cents a Podcast. It's wonderful to be here with you yet again. And I'd just like to remind you uh, right here, right now, that um, the that we are officially into our third to last week of shows here on Four Cents a Podcast for the first season. It's uh, It's been a great summer. It's been a great thing to try. And I can't believe that um, I've even gained uh, the wonderful audience that I have now, in part due uh, to the uh, release of Beneath Ceaseless Skies, which again will be out um, the 31st of August, 2020, so uh, a week from this coming Monday, uh, and it's it's just wonderful to know that uh, the show uh, has people who listen to it. You, know, you put things out into the world and you have no idea what to expect uh, when they go out there. Are they going to gain an audience? Aren't they going to gain an audience? Who knows? But it's great to know that um, I've got an audience here, uh, here on Four Cents of Podcast. I've got listeners apparently all across the world, in countries, uh, Belgium, Ireland, Germany, uh, India, uh, you know, uh, the UK, obviously, Australia, Canada, you know, all all the places that... um, that I, I, places, most places that I've never been, but I'm looking forward to one day actually being able to go there, hopefully when COVID-19 finally dies down. So, um, thanks for joining me on this journey. Again, we're into our third to last week of shows, and uh, in the meantime, don't forget Beneath Ceaseless Skies, the wonderful anthology of romantic science fiction and fantasy short stories the 33 original stories all together is coming out august 31st 2020 and in the meantime let's get on with the show Now it's time for In Other News, the part of the show where I briefly piss and moan about something in the news from this past week. And boy, oh boy, it's been yet another interesting week. Obviously, the big event in the news this past week, because it's been going on for the whole fucking thing, has got to be the Democratic National Convention, the good old DNC. But let's work our way there. Let's keep that in the background and actually kind of build to it. So, at the top of this week... Um, the United States Postal Service, which of course has been taking a pummeling from the executive branch of our wonderful government here in the United States, has uh, it, it finally began hearings to figure out what to do. And apparently one of the reasons why the Postmaster General was finally started to get grilled about what's going on with the USPS was... You know, despite all the complaints from individual citizens saying, you know, they were getting their mail late, you know, the mail wasn't showing up, why is there no consistent carrier, you know, all this stuff, you know, people forgetting, of course, that COVID-19 is still a threat, and uh, obviously, 
you know, the USPS doing its best to keep the mail going um, in spite of everything that's going on. But even despite the individual citizens complaining, finally what ended up apparently tipping the scale in favor of trying to figure out something to do about everything that's going on was the regional postmasters going to um, the federal government and saying, you know, at the rate we are working, under the conditions we are working, with the limited funding we are working, with the way that the postmaster general that was selected by Trump has been instituting all these changes that have been crippling the functionality of the USPS, we will not be able to do the mail-in ballots because that's, at the moment, that seems to be the way that the government is going. Um, you know, people don't want to risk going to the polls, especially the old folks. They want the option to mail-in vote or absentee vote. There is a difference, by the way. Absentee vote, you can either mail it in as long as it's notarized, or you can... Uh, <clears throat> Or you can deliver it directly to the to the to the people who actually count the votes. With mail-in voting, it has to be mailed. Um, that's why it's fucking called mail-in voting, for Christ's sake. But anyway, it was the the regional people, the regional heads of the individual post offices all around the country, who finally said the way things are going, we're not going to be able to do that because at the moment, it looks as if COVID-19 is not going to go away in time for the election, and if you want mail-in voting to be a thing, you have to help us. So, uh, the, the the hearings before the, the, before the Senate and the House uh, began earlier this week, and just today, as a matter of fact, an hour ago, from the recording of this um, this episode, in this segment, they finally passed a $25 billion emergency funding package in order to help the USPS actually function, which is ridiculous. The fact that they had to, they took them a week, for Christ's sake, to come to this conclusion, despite the fact that everybody had been telling them and everybody knew what was going on, it took them a week to finally get money out and actually help this institution that has actually been around longer than our own federal government. Oy. But that's, uh, that, that's the, that's one upside, I suppose, is the fact that, um, things have changed now, and it looks as if we might actually be able to have mail-in ballots for this election. Hopefully it happens. Fingers crossed that, uh, things actually get fixed. There's been a lot of uh, natural disasters in the news lately as well. I mean, in Northern California, this is um, obviously an annual scourge, but there have been fires up in California, which, you know, again, that's a regular thing, um, because you have to remember that most of California is basically natural desert. But this year, it was particularly bad, because rather than just, you know, normal forest fires, which most people in California... Are, are, are used to dealing with annually. This year, they had full-blown firestorms. Now, for those of you who don't know what a firestorm is, let me explain it to you. It's basically what happens when you've got a wildfire going, full-blown blazing inferno, and then suddenly, for some inexplicable reason, the creator of the universe decides that in the middle of this wildfire, they're going to drop a tornado. And not only that, 
Not only are you going to have a wildfire plus a tornado, but the two of them are then going to fuse together like <laughs> like two Yu-Gi-Oh card monsters. <laughs> and they're going to fuse together into one massive abomination of a natural disaster. And that's what's been pillorying um, the, the Northern California area for the last several days. Um, thankfully, again, because... California is used to this. Again, it's an annual excur- it's an annual thing that's been getting worse, I should point out, because of climate change. Um, we, it, they, they have been able to cope with it reasonably well, as best as you can. You know, when, when you've got a blazing inferno slowly making its way towards your driveway, I'm, I imagine that's, you know, one hell of a gut punch. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this is part of California culture. It's that, the mudslides occasionally when it rains, the earthquakes, all that stuff, they're used to it, so it's under control. Now, in closer to my neck of the woods here in the Midwest, in the state just directly north of us in Iowa, they had hurricane-strength straight winds go across most, about 60% of the northern half of the state. Now, straight winds, hurricane-strength winds, that's basically 120-mile winds. And Iowa is known for many things, among them being very flat and very open. I mean, there's a reason why it's, it, it's ideal corn country. It's because it's, it's fieldy. It's, it's flat land. It's perfect for this. You know, had Dorothy not lived in Kansas, she could have lived in Iowa, and it would have made total sense. In this case, the straight winds came through and decimated a good portion of the northern half of the state, to the point where this happened over the last weekend, over last weekend, you know, Saturday, Sunday. And over the last seven days since this happened, um, a good portion of the state still does not have electricity. They still don't have internet access. Many of their houses have been destroyed. Huge portions of the coming corn crop were completely flattened by this storm. Because um, even though, you know, obviously, and I don't know if any of you know anything about how rural uh, fields for, for crop are, are set up, but usually the way you do it is you kind of grow it in a patch of land that is surrounded by trees. And ideally you want to do that because the trees serve as natural windbreakers. So when you've got massive amounts of rapidly moving air going across the corn, the trees are going to act as a bit of a buffer. So that way the corn doesn't get flattened or whatever crop you happen to be growing doesn't get flattened by the wind and apparently they didn't have enough of those so now not only did these these straight winds go across the entire state of Iowa flattening a good portion of the corn crop they knocked over whole grain silos I've seen a few photos of the, the these silos going over like dominoes that have been knocked over and obviously grain spilling out of them you know, like somebody spilled their beer. You know, it's it's terrible. Um, now, in some parts of the state, again, um, the 120-mile winds didn't hit them. But in other parts of the state, they got 80-mile-an-hour winds. In some of them, they only got 60-mile-an-hour winds. But it still came through, and it still tore up a huge amount of 
the um, of the state. And it happened. Uh, we got a little bit of it down here in St. Louis. We maybe got 40 mile an hour winds, 40, 50 mile an hour winds that came through one afternoon um, when I swear to God, I thought it was going to thunderstorm or something because it looked terrible. Um, outside, like something was something. Some shit was about to go down. Um, thankfully, it didn't. Um, I think some parts of the city of St. Louis did lose power for like a day, maybe even half a day, because we've got very good people down here who usually get right on these emergencies and, and restore power as quickly as possible. But the fact that it's, you know, it's it's been now seven, seven days going on eight, um, and we're still having these outages of power here in Iowa, that's terrible. It's terrible. And hopefully... Um, Hopefully things improve for everybody up there soon. Um, I suppose now we should begin talking about the Democratic National Convention. I don't want to, but it's in the news. (laughs) But here we go. The Democratic National Convention. So obviously the Democratic National Convention didn't happen the way it normally happens traditionally uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, typically, you know, I've, I've gone through enough of these conventions in my lifetime, you know, I've only lived under about three presidencies at this point, uh, well, let's see, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, yeah, yeah, four presidencies, um, at this point, and, uh, the, the way these conventions usually take place, okay, there's obviously a stage, and there's usually an auditorium or a stadium full of people who are just cheering, hoping that their candidate gets elected and whatnot, uh, that, that couldn't happen this year, so instead it went all digital. The DNC decided to go all digital. They were not going to have, obviously because they couldn't, they weren't going to have a massive uh, in-person convention. So instead they had a sort of a very long extended Zoom meeting. And it worked to an extent. I mean, uh, you know, the first couple of days we heard from a number of people. Obviously, we heard from all the people that Joe Biden ran against in the in the course of the um, in the course of the presidential run, and it looked like uh, things were reasonably okay. But of course, there were a few hiccups that came in along the way. The first big one that I think uh, made the news the next day was AOC Alexandra Cortez, who, in the course of her introduction, she had about two minutes in the course of the of these of these conventions um where she introduced one of the speakers and that speaker happened to be bernie sanders now if you know anything about aoc and bernie they're sort of you know they're tight um aoc's a big proponent of a lot of the things that bernie sanders really was pushing in his 2016 platform a platform that has since basically been incorporated almost wholesale into the democratic platform generally speaking um but during during her speech, she apparently nominated Bernie Sanders, and this, you know, put every this sent everyone obviously into arms, and everybody was PO'd, and you know they they couldn't believe it. it's like like they were there to nominate Joe Biden. What is this little upstart congresswoman doing, in, uh, nominating a guy who lost? Um, but it turns out that AOC was in fact um, perfectly in line to do just that because it followed and I hope I'm getting this right there's a thing called Roberts Roberts not Roberts what the fuck is Roberts Roberts rules of procedure or proceeding 
Robert's Rules of Procedure. I don't know who Robert's is. I don't know who this figure Robert's is, but honestly, you know, I, I've seen enough courtroom drama to think that I, I have a, an idea of how his procedures work. Well, in the course of Robert's Rules of, of Proceeding uh, or Procedure, um, she was perfectly in line to nominate whoever she wanted. Obviously, Bernie wasn't going to win because he didn't get the delegates in the primaries. Uh, so, but and the fact that everybody made such a big stink about it, despite the fact that it was perfectly normal, normal standard procedure, just you know, dumbfounds me. I can't believe it. It's like, why are you complaining so much? You know who's going to get nominated. Like, just loosen up, please. The other, of course, big uh, snafu that happened uh, <laughs> during this week was after, obviously last week when Joe Biden uh, d- decided to announce that Kamala Harris was going to be his VP, um, there was yet another round of birtherism. Could Kamala possibly have been, uh, uh, could, w- w- would it be allowable for her to become the vice president? You know, it, it's the same thing that happened with Obama in 2008. Was he born in the United States? Does he qualify? Can he run for this office? Same thing happened to, to Kamala. Um, I think it was slightly more intense this time around because obviously not only is she a woman of color, but she is a woman. And, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's ridiculous because we know for a fact that she was born in this country. We know for a fact. I just hope to God she doesn't, you know, flash her birth certificate on, on TV within the next few months because we don't need that. Um, you don't need to do, uh, you don't need to make the same mistake that Elizabeth Warren did by submitting to a blood test and, and confirming your claim uh, about where you were born or what ethnicity you, you, can, uh, you, you, can, uh, you claim to be a part of. It's ridiculous. But of course, um, the big news came through. Um, a lot of the, believe it or not, a lot of the um, videos, I, I call, I mock the DNC for it being basically an extended Zoom meeting this year uh, for pra- perfectly practical reasons. But a good portion of their programming were basically people sending in these testimonials talking about how, what a mistake it was that they voted for Trump in the last election and like trying to figure out what. <laughs> why this was happening and why they did it and reflecting on why they did it and why they need to change their minds. Um, (laughs) My favorite thing that happened uh, easily, I think it was the second day of the convention. I was sitting in the living room with my father and my father and I, my father is very astute when it comes to politics, American politics, and he was watching the, (laughs) he was watching one of these testimonials. You probably don't remember it. It was this little skinny white dude sitting there holding what had to have been a whiskey or bourbon on the rocks and just talking in the camera saying, you know, I voted for Donald Trump, you know, in the last election, and now I'm trying to figure out what it was that made me do that. And as soon as he got to that point where he's like, I'm trying to figure out why it is that I voted for Donald Trump in the last election, and my father at that moment, and he is the best natural comedic timing of anybody I know, stood up from his chair, his big-ass lounge chair that he just sits upon like it's a throne, stood up from there and was heading to the bathroom, and and as that guy said, trying to figure out why it was that I voted for Donald Trump, my father looked at the TV and said, because you're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) 
I damn near laughed uh, so hard that I almost, uh, you know, <laughs> relieved myself on myself. Anyway, but it, it was, a, in, in many ways, it was a beautiful convention in some ways. Um, the last night easily was the best night, though. I mean, Kamala's speech was, was wonderful and uh, in, in, in many ways, but that final night of programming that they had for the, for the, um, for the DNC was, was phenomenal. I mean, not only did Bloomberg get to basically save face, because, I mean, that guy, I really hope that um, Biden puts him into some kind of position, because he would make a brilliant attack dog. Uh, he was really, really funny, um, and, and just really, and very articulate. I mean, I'm fairly certain he was reading off of a teleprompter the entire time, but just the that New Yorker wise-ass attitude that he brought to it was was excellent. Um, but my favorite testimonial, and I will talk about um, Biden's speech briefly. My favorite testimonial had to be from uh, that young boy uh, whose name I, I'm not going to repeat. I mean, it, I'm sure the YouTube video has been shared a number of number of times. But he was from the, uh, the the same stuttering society that Joe Biden does a lot of uh, work for. And despite having to cope with that, I'm not entirely sure what the politically correct word for it is, but that, that impediment, his, his stutter, his stammer, um, not being able to get through a sentence without tripping over a particular consonant, um, the fact that he was able to get through that and that he was completely unashamed to do it is, uh, I mean, it was heartbreaking. And the fact that that was the main segue into introducing Biden's speech uh, was, was, I gotta admit it, it was a stroke of PR genius. Because, you know, if the, the whole point of these conventions in particular is basically to humanize your candidate... And thus, it, because, you know, they're politicians, and therefore they're professional assholes. But, you know, with, with, with a convention, you have a chance to pull away sort of the public persona of this Machiavellian figure in a suit. And, um, and, and get at the person who's actually beneath that. And the whole point of any convention is basically to draw as much sympathy and as much empathy from uh, the from from the, the the people watching as you possibly can, and in this case, I think it worked to a T for Biden, because you know I bought into the story. I gotta admit it, I bought into the story. I think you know what? Well, the way they frame it this way, yeah. At the beginning, he was kind of characterized by Sleepy Joe <laughs> or Creepy Uncle Joe or whatever one term you want to call him, uh, but it you know it, you you genuinely come to believe that he's actually a caring human being um, beneath this political facade and some politicians actually are capable of being like that and I have a feeling that maybe Joe has a chance but I'm not entirely sure because you know we won't know until election day but now let's talk about um, Joe Biden's speech itself I think in many ways what he did in that speech not only was it was a rousing piece of wonderful oratory that really brought out the best of what he could be as a political candidate, but it really 
codified what his what his uh, ideas uh, as a president are going to be, what his main goals are going to be as president, again, if he gets elected. The first, obviously, is in... Uh, well, one of them, obviously, is in the pandemic. The next, obviously, would be to revitalize the economy, which is going to be interesting. I'm not entirely sure how he's going to do it, but hey, he says he's got a plan. That's more than Trump he has. Uh, then he... Then, of course, we've got to deal with the ongoing systemic racism issue. And finally, there is the um, the issue of climate change, which, of course, was one of the first things that got thrown out the window when Trumpy got into office four years ago. Uh, it was It was... You know, pulling out of the Paris Agreement, basically almost trying to smash NATO. Uh, it it was it was a terrible thing. I mean, we sh- we shall see how this goes. But honestly, what what sort of cemented it for me? What sort of cemented my uh, I won't say hope because uh, I'm a jaded 27 year old who doesn't believe in hope anymore. But what? What really uh, got me, what really hooked me, was the fact that (laughs) Biden started quoting Seamus Heaney towards the end. Nobel laureate, uh, one of the greatest Irish poets of all time. Most people probably know his name without knowing it because he did a very famous and often used translation of Beowulf. But he quoted a beautiful section of a poem uh, that uh, from a from actually a verse drama um, but that Heaney had adapted into basically doing what T.S. Eliot did for most of the last part of his life, which was writing these plays in verse, something like Shakespeare or you know the ancient Greeks used to use. In his case, he actually took um, a play by Felic- a play by Sophocles called Felicities translated into a reasonably modern English idiom and wrote everything in verse. And the section he specifically quoted from was from a section called The Cure of Troy. And just to give you an idea of how gorgeous this is, because I went ahead and actually went and looked for it, um, I'm going to read you, I'm going to close out this segment by reading you the entire thing. So here it is, Seamus Heaney's The Cure of Troy. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. History says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the long-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope in history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain and lightning and storm and a god speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. Thank you for listening. That's all for me from uh, for In Other News. I've got a good show for you for the rest of this episode of Four Cents of Podcast, so please stick with me and stay tuned. Let's have some fun.
I can't believe it. I just don't believe it. What? What don't you believe? What's wrong? I can't believe that fat son of a bitch didn't use us last week. Well, you can't expect him to use us every single week. I mean, surely he had to have his reasons. His reasons? His reasons for using that Alfred Hitchcock wannabe sounding son of a bitch? No. I don't care about his reasons, he didn't use us last week, despite the fact that we've been loyal to him this entire time, and here we are, expected to do another job without saying a goddamn word about it. Well, come on, let's just do the spot, we can get paid, and then we can leave. No, I'm not doing it, that fat son of a bitch can go fuck himself, I ain't doing it. Well, fine, I'll do it, goddammit. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> we'll be right back after this strange interlude. There, now we can go. Fine, go. Now turn off this goddamn machine. Let's get the hell out of here. I'm, let me find that fat son of a bitch so I can tell him myself what I think of him. God damn it. Oh, Jesus, you are the most unprofessional person in the world. No wonder he didn't want to use you last week. I heard that, you son of a bitch. If you want flowers and chocolate or other superficial crap, find a young foolish idealist and they'll provide it in a snap. If you want to be spoiled rotten with a shower of gifts a day, find a loaded up billionaire and you can live your life that way. But if you want someone who will support your endeavors and dreams, I might just be the guy for you, although I come from modest means. If you want someone who can help you through those times of deep despair, I will hold your hand through it all, from now till my last breath of air. In my introduction to this series, I explained that the only way to get around Honduras if you don't own your own car, preferably one that has four-wheel drive, is by bus. As long as you got on the right bus heading to the right department and had 200 lempiras to pay your fare, approximately 10 American dollars, you could ride for as long as you wanted. Despite this being the truth, driving around Honduras by bus or car is still not easy. Why? Because Honduras has virtually no nationwide public infrastructure. Unlike here in the States, where we have the interstate highway system, thank you Eisenhower, all the interdepartment roads in Honduras are just that, roads. Unpaved, rough, dirt roads, most of which are incredibly narrow. Compounding that is the country's largely mountainous topography. You know, my father said, Honduras has the best bus drivers in the world. Foolishly, I asked why. My father then explained that it was because of the mountainous roads. The mountain roads that crisscrossed the country were very narrow, basically about as wide as a one-way street in the U.S. They technically had no lanes because there were no painted lines marking them up. There were no guardrails preventing cars from going over the edge. And there was little to nothing in the way of a curb between the edge of the road and the cliff edges. In other words, if you swerved too violently, 
or were caught off guard by another vehicle coming towards you from the opposite direction, adios a tu culo. As the bus started moving when we were heading to Don Lee, I prayed to Jesus and about three other deities that we'd live. When traveling to Don Lee, we took such a bus. Before we could get out of Tegucigalpa, though, we passed through the city's many narrow, winding streets. It was during that mini-tour of the city that I got a look at one of the most prominent daily fixtures of the town. The street vendors. Then, just like now, statistics rated Honduras as one of the single poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. I think it beats Haiti by, like, one spot. The main reason for the, the lack of work and the piss poor level of in, is the piss-poor level of industry that exists within the country. Honduras remains one of the most under-industrialized countries in the world. Agriculture, and thus agricultural exports, continue to be the bedrock of its economy. Its largest es- exports at the moment happen to be pine wood, harvested from the mountain forests, and fruit namely bananas. In more recent years, the national textile industry has begun to gain some traction within the country and outside of the country, but it's not quite enough to lift the entire nation out of its present level of hardship. Unless you own a business, have large investments in the agricultural industry, have a decent enough education to get a job at the university or within the government, or work in politics for the party presently in power, you're always struggling for money. This level of mass poverty has done two things to the Honduran people. It's caused us to develop a major sense of familialism, meaning putting family above all else, because after all, in a time of hardship, the only people you have to turn to is family. And it's caused a small-scale, hustle-and-grind gig economy to develop in the wake of mass poverty. Americans today would love to think that driving for Uber or reselling thrift store crap on eBay and Amazon is a new concept, and it is, for Americans. Hondurans have been doing this shit for decades. How do they do it? Well, they sell food. On nearly every city street corner in Tegucigalpa and Comayaguela, which is right across the river from Tegucigalpa, you'll always find one or two people selling some kind of food. Maybe it'll be candy, maybe it'll be soda, maybe it'll even be plantain chips, a local favorite. But it will be something. People in Honduras hand sell these things, probably losing a little money in the process, because they have no choice. If they don't sell their entire daily inventory, they're probably not going to eat that night. They might not even be able to pay the one bill they have. They do it for survival. Yet, despite this, the vendors don't sell with an attitude of desperation. They do it with a highly polished dignity. Like a professional salesperson, they casually inquire each person that they encounter if they'd like to purchase one of their goods. And more often than not, despite most of the people not even having much cash on themselves, their customers shell out a few limpiras for a bag of chips or a soda, candy, or whatever. Now, even though the vendors are extremely professional and carry themselves as such, it doesn't mean that they're not tenacious. 
Like any good salesperson, their objective is always very simple: to make a sale, no matter what. When we rode the bus, we eventually stopped near a junkyard slash car garage slash gas station. It was there that my mother gave me the title for this ongoing series on the podcast. When she saw all the old school buses sitting in the junkyard of the gas station junkyard uh, uh, car garage trio. And it was also there that I witnessed firsthand the tenacity of these street vendors. During our brief stop, two vendors, each with a rack full of plantain chips in plastic bags, climbed onto the bus without any limpers for the ride. Slowly, with each of them taking one half of the bus, one half of the bus in terms of one half of the aisle, they made their way all the way through the bus, hawking plantain chips. As they were doing it, the bus started to move again. We had to have gone at least a full six or seven miles, all of it downhill, by the time they got to the very back of that bus. And by the time they got to the very back of that bus, they'd emptied their racks. When the bus stopped again, another three miles away, they jumped off and headed back up the hill to where they'd gotten on, on foot, uphill. That takes. An enormous amount of inner metal to be able to do. They probably had to do this at least two times a day just to make anything resembling a profit. It's a hard life, but these vendors still did it, and in order to live a life of decent dignity, nothing could keep them from pursuing that, and they did it. And in turn, in turn. They didn't deserve pity, which is probably what you might be feeling at my description of them. They deserve only respect. Hey, Bob. What? Looks like we got another problem. Oh goody! What is it this time? Um. Well, you know how somebody was supposed to put in an order to Mariachi's for lunch? Oh yeah, Mariachi's—that that Mexican place everybody likes. Yeah. Well, what's the problem? Well, when somebody said to order Mariachi's, apparently somebody actually, well, ordered Mariachi's. What? Just give me a second. Billy's down on the soundstage. He can probably explain it better than I can. Hey, Billy. Hey. Um. So I'm here with Bob right now, and I was just wondering if you could explain to him the、uh, the mariachi situation. Oh, hi, Bob. Hey, Billy. Um. Yeah.、Uh, somebody was supposed to put in an order for mariachis, the Mexican place, for the whole crew down here. But when somebody actually went to order mariachis, they ended up, well, ordering mariachis. <laughs> What the hell does that even mean? Well, just give me a second. I'll, I'll I'll show you, or I'll let you hear.、Um, pardona me, pardona me, muchachos.、Uh, un momento,、uh, toca vamos su música、uh, por mi、uh, o、oh, como se dice a、uh, boss Bob aquí. Oh sí sí, un momento, un momento, muchachos. Uno, dos, tres.
Muchos gracias. See what I mean, Bob? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, somebody's going to need to actually order Mexican food so that way we can have lunch. And in the meantime, we're going to need to pay these people off. Well, you, they've been hired for a whole hour. I know. But we're going to need to get them out of here so that way we can keep the show rolling. And what are we going to do in the meantime? I mean, we've got a show running right now. <clears throat> well, I guess we're just going to need to put on another commercial until their time's up. Okay. Um, sorry, folks. We'll be right back after these messages. This episode of Four Cents a Podcast is brought to you today by the NALA, the National Association of Limerick Aficionados. At NALA, our members revel in the saucy, suggestive, bawdy, and raunchy world of language. We compose, archive, and celebrate the glory that is the limerick. Join us online at nala.org and sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you'll receive a new limerick every week, straight to your smartphone or computer. This week's limerick is a real kicker. An old barber named Bill once said, I swear you'll never catch me dead, praising the good Lord. Then one night he scored, shouting, Thank Jesus for good head. Visit Nala.org for more linguistic fun today. I think I've made it pretty clear over the last several months that one of the hallmarks of my own personality is a high degree of asociality. I am that strange sort of person who is basically content with their own company. I don't need to be at parties or have endless nights out in order to have a good time. I'm perfectly happy to stay at home, read a book, watch a movie, whatever. Netflix and chill is basically a religion for me. For the most part, I'm the sort of person who divides the world's population into four sections. Family, friends, acquaintances, and people whose existence I must tolerate or I'll go to jail. Those first two sections of this proverbial pie chart are quite small, with that third section aptly coming in third, while that fourth category dominates. My family over the years has, as most families are wont to do, given me endless amounts of crap for this personality quirk. They've called me everything from antisocial to a hermit. And the fact is that it's true. I don't need and honestly don't like spending tons of time in the company of other people. Now that isn't to say that I don't do it or can't do it. I have a day job that requires me to do so, and to relax, I always shut myself away afterwards. During family gatherings, I can be just as jovial and congenial as anyone can. It's just that the next day, and, it, and it's happened enough over the, my entire life that I know it always occurs, I know that I'm going to feel like I just woke up from a massive drinking session. This also isn't to say that I've never had any friends or wanted friends. I've mentioned uh, my buddies 
will and vow on here plenty of times. And all my life, in fact, I've, in truth, had a, always had a small circle of friends. My two earliest and two closest friends for much of my childhood and part of my adolescence were my buddies, Raymond and Dylan. Years ago, back in the late 20th century, as in the late 90s, I met both of them at our now-defunct old elementary school called Kottmeyer ECC. The ECC stood for Early Childhood Center. It was a sort of mini-elementary school because it only educated students from preschool age all the way through the second grade. Both my brother and I went through there partly to make sure that my mother could keep track of the two of us uh, for as long as she could, and the best way to do that was to keep us in one place. And it was also there that I made my two earliest, oldest, and closest friendships at that time. I met Dylan first. He and I were in the same kindergarten class with teachers Miss Bolin and Mrs. Robinson. The only reason I remember the teachers' names is in part because each of the classrooms in Kottmeyer had an animal designated to it. Miss Bolin and Mrs. Robinson's class was the Bunny Room. I can't quite remember what it was that brought us together. It might have been something as simple as sitting next to each other at lunch or playing together during recess. Actually, one of the real foundations of our childhood friendship was a mutual interest in Pokemon. Now, for those of you who've grown up with the more recent iterations of that show, let me give you a little pop culture history lesson. Pokemon Indigo League, as it's now called, which featured Ash, Pikachu, Misty, and Brock's travels through the Kanto League and introduced the world everyone loves, began airing in the fall of about 1998 here in the States. Dylan, Roy, and I all grew up watching it. In my case, my brother and I watched it every Saturday morning on Channel 11's Kids WB back when Saturday morning cartoons were still a thing. We played the video games, we collected the trading cards, and we watched the show religiously, always waiting for the next gym match, seeing the next new Pokemon Ash was going to add to his party, and seeing whether or not Misty would finally get her new bike. It was our all-consuming childhood interest. The next year in first grade, Dylan and I continued to be buddies even though we were never in the same class again. However, in the first grade, that was also the year that I met Raymond. And no, you haven't been mishearing me as I've said his name. His actual name is Raymond. Like Raymond, but with an O instead of an A and a little apostrophe between the two. Raymond and I met in Miss Wookie Sharpiro's Ladybug class. <laughs> we too built our friendship on a mutual love of Pokemon, and right around that same time, we also added another show to our shared interest Venn diagram, and that was Yu-Gi-Oh. Think Magic the Gathering, but with cooler monsters, a more understandable set of rules, and a kick-ass cartoon. We traded cards, watched the show religiously, just as we did with Pokemon. Roy, Dylan, and I soon became a close trio. Although there was a fair amount of tension between Roy and Dill even through that time. Roy particularly got in the habit of calling Dylan Dill Pickles after the Rugrats character. And the minor animosity continued from there. But I was usually able to play Peacemaker and sometimes Shitstirrer. We remained friends for the next several years. 
Even after we all left Kottmeyer and each of us ended up going to different elementary schools, we still remained close. And that was partly was my doing. Once we headed our separate ways, every year we'd get back together over a weekend near my birthday for a sleepover. Yes, a sleepover. You heard that correctly, a sleepover. Boys can have sleepovers too. They're just a little bit louder and rowdier than other sorts of sleepovers. My birthday almost always fell during spring break, so we got to spend a fair amount of time together. And the birthday over the years always had a pattern. What would happen is they would come Friday evening, we'd hang out, have dinner, and do birthday cake. Uh, Usually we'd end up hunkering down in front of the living room TV watching a movie, almost always the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie from the uh, early 90s, at which point I'd always, for some stupid reason, end up falling asleep, (laughs) which they never stopped giving me crap about over the years. Had we been older frat boys, I'm sure I would have woken up the next morning with a permanent marker mustache on my face. Thankfully, that never happened. The next day, we'd then have some sort of excursion. Sometimes to the zoo, sometimes the science center, sometimes the magic house. Regardless of where it was, we'd always go someplace. After spending a lot of time there, we'd then go have lunch. Almost always, we'd either go to Popeye's for fried chicken, or more often than not, we'd go to Burger King. Growing up, uh, we were more of a McDonald's family, so Burger King was a big culture shock for us. As we grew over, video games became part of the ritual too. Usually, we'd end up playing several rounds of the most fun video game ever, Super Smash Bros. Melee. I'd always play as either Kirby or Dr. Mario, Dylan, if I'm remembering correctly, favored Captain Falcon, and Roy almost always preferred Fox or Falco. If you know the games, you know those characters, and you also know how they all fight. (laughs) Believe it or not, even though I probably played the weakest seeming characters ever, I almost, I usually won a fair number of rounds. Not always, but I usually won a fair number of rounds. We continued this tradition, believe it or not, until we were all pushing 14. But by the time we all started attending high school, I got it into my head that the idea of three 14-year-olds having a sleepover was childish. That adolescent self-consciousness had really set in, and unfortunately, it pretty much cost me my two best friends, and my two oldest friends. Without that annual renewal, Roy, Dill, and I lost touch over the next four years. We never saw each other, never crossed paths, because none of us moved in the same circles anymore because we were all in different schools. Yet even through all that time, because of all those preceding years, I still continued to think of them as my friends. It wouldn't be until the end of high school that I would get back in touch with each of them. Roy and I lucked out and ended up going to the same college after we both graduated from high school, but for some reason, probably due to hang-ups from my own adolescence, we were unable to rebuild what our friendship had been several years before. Too much time had passed, I think, and we'd changed too much as people. The same was true with me and Dylan a little later on. Too much time, too much change, 
and not enough time and opportunity to make up for what we had each missed. We still keep in touch, though, as much as we possibly can, but we're all grown adults now, with our own lives and our own responsibilities. On my desk, though, where I work and do all my work where I'm recording this podcast right now, sits a picture. It's a photo my mother took of my brother Dylan, Roy, and me, and our old dog Einstein, back during one of the earliest birthday get-togethers. We're all clambered on top of Einstein's old doghouse that we'd gotten from Sam's Club years before that, of course, he never used because he hated it. But it reminds me of what the three of us once had and of what maybe the three of us may eventually have sometime in the future if we ever get the chance to become good friends again. Still, no matter how much time passes, I will still continue to think of them as mis amigos. funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves.